You're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. We have an exciting show for you this month. Andrew's going to talk about the philosophy of exoplanet research. I'm going to cover the amazing discovery of seven Earth-sized worlds orbiting an ultra-cool dwarf star. And Hugh will cover all of the other news from the last month. But first, let's meet our exocasters. Hugh Osborne hunts for transiting exoplanets from the University of Warwick in the UK. Andrew Rushby studies planetary habitability and the early climate of the Earth at NASA Ames in California. And introducing the show was Hannah Wakeford, who studies the clouds and atmospheres of exoplanets from NASA Goddard in Washington, D.C. And Hannah uh, is also poised to get our show underway with some very exciting news. Over to you, Hannah. Yeah, so this week has been really exciting. So on February 22nd, uh, the TRAPPIST team announced via a massive NASA press briefing that they had discovered seven Earth-sized worlds orbiting the ultra-cool dwarf star TRAPPIST-1. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that discovery and why it's captured so much interest and attention, and will continue to do so for a really long time to come. But I want to start at the very beginning, because it's a very good place to start, and discuss what is TRAPPIST. So TRAPPIST is uh, the name of the survey. It stands for Transiting Planets and Planetesimal Small Telescope. So it's a little bit garbled in terms of an acronym. Now, the reason why it's an acronym which says TRAPPIST is because it's named after a Belgian beer, which is brewed in monasteries, mostly in Belgium, but also across other countries in Europe. So therefore, it's no surprise that the TRAPPIST team, the planet hunting team, are Belgian. It's a Belgian-led team. Uh, and they have a Belgian telescope, which is situated at La Silla Observatory, which is in Chile. Uh, it's a 60 centimeter telescope, and it's searching the solar neighborhood for comets. Um, it's made many successful observations of our outer solar system dwarf planets. So it made stellar occultation measurements of Makemake and what was the other one? Eris, it made some observations of, which showed that it actually might be smaller than Pluto. So it's it's not just hunting for planets, which is really, really interesting. It's a very small telescope, and its role is to look for comets, uh, dwarf planets in our outer solar system. But also, it's looking for very small stars in our solar neighbourhood that might have planets around them. And that is how TRAPPIST has become a very famous survey now for the discovery of a very small star with some very small planets around it. And that that star is now dubbed TRAPPIST-1. In fact, the first time we heard TRAPPIST-1 was last May, so not that long ago, when the team, uh, led by Michel Gillon, uh, announced that there are two Earth-sized worlds orbiting that star. That was May last year, just two worlds that they discovered, and a possible third world that was discussed in that paper. But now, as of February 22nd, we know that there are even more planets orbiting that star, which is just incredibly exciting uh, and a little bit hard to imagine. But I'm going to take a tiny bit closer look at that and pull it apart and try and see uh, what it is that's been discovered and, and why that's exciting. So TRAPPIST-1 is the, the name of the star 
And it's an ultra cool dwarf star. So this means that it has a temperature which is less than 2,700 Kelvin. So less than 2,500 degrees, roughly. And actually, if you look in our solar neighborhood, about 15% of objects in our solar neighborhood are these ultra cool dwarf stars, these very small stars. Now, TRAPPIST-1 specifically is roughly 8% of our sun's mass and 10% of the radius. So it's very small in comparison. And as I said, the temperature is less than 2,500 degrees C. Uh, so that's much colder than our sun. And this gives it a characteristic red color. Now, because it's so much smaller, it's actually much easier for us to detect these small planets around it. Now, to imagine why that might be the case, think of a basketball with a golf ball in front of it. That would be the equivalent of a big star like our sun with a Jupiter-sized planet orbiting very close around it. Now, if you imagine instead a tennis ball with a marble in front of it, that would be the equivalent of a small star with a small planet around it. And it's this ratio, the size ratio, which is the same, which allows us to see these smaller planets because the star is so much smaller, the signal is equivalent. So that's why it's a really exciting discovery because we're getting the same equivalent signal from these small planets because they're around a small star as we do for these giant planets, which have been really easy for us to find around stars like our sun. And as we said at the beginning, what's even better about this is there's not just one, there's not two, but there are seven Earth-sized planets that transit this star. Seven. I'm going to say it again. Seven. <laughs> it's it's I it's still amazing to me, and I've known about this for a, for a bit, and it, I love the possibilities that it gives us. This system is, however, very different from our own. It's incredibly compact. If you compare it to our solar system, the star and all seven of those orbiting worlds would fit within the orbit of Mercury, which is the closest planet to our sun. Now, the closest planet, TRAPPIST-1b, has an orbit or a year uh, of just one and a half days. So in one and a half days, it's already gone around the star once. The outermost planet, TRAPPIST-1h, has an orbit of 20 days. So within one month, you would be able to see at least one transit of every single one of those planets. Now, this is actually how the Belgian team discovered these new worlds. They used the Spitzer Space Telescope to monitor the starlight from TRAPPIST-1 over 1,000 hours. So that's, oh, that's what, 41 days of time they looked at this star to see when these dips happened. And from that, they were able to actually disentangle, like to pull apart which each of these planets were. So as I said before, there was a third planet that they thought they had seen in May. Now, what's really interesting is it this third planet that they thought they had seen turns out to be three planets. The signal was just so small in the ground-based data, they couldn't determine what it was. So now we know that, that that one that they possibly found earlier is actually more planets. So there are seven in total now that we know of. And... What is then really interesting, and I, I'm sure Andrew can have some comments on this, is that because it's a small and cold star, the cold thing's important here. This means that the region around this star where the temperature is just right for water to become a liquid is very close to the star as well. 
and three of these worlds sit within this star's habitable zone, which is this Goldilocks region where the water, if it existed on the surface of a planet, would potentially then pool into puddles or lakes or seas or global oceans or whatever it wanted to do. So it's really good for us to look at these kinds of worlds. Now, the reason why I love Trappist so much is it's got everything. It's got seven planets all about the same size. So it's a great comparison. We can compare things that are the same size to each other. But they're all at different places around the star. So two of those planets actually sit well within the, the habitable zone. So what I mean is inside of it, closer to the star, where actually water would most likely only exist as a vapour, so steam in the in the air if they had any. Then you have three planets which sit in this, this Goldilocks zone where water could exist as a liquid. And then you have two planets which are outside of this habitable zone where water would be frozen on any surface. So you have this whole array of situations that you can then probe, you can really look into and see how that distance correlation has an impact on what we're observing for their atmospheres. And that's something that we do not have with any other system at all. We do not have this kind of situation where we can do a direct comparison independent uh, of the stellar impact for us to, to really investigate what it means to be an Earth-sized world. What does it mean to be on something the size of the Earth? Venus is the size of the Earth. It's a completely different place. How can we really understand this? And the TRAPPIST-1 system really gives us that. Now, the reason why this is going to be the centre for many future studies, and I'm, I'm going to say about a decade, if not more, this is going to be our best shot uh, at looking at these kinds of worlds, is because no other survey is really poised to detect such things which is really interesting because we're launching next year the TESS satellite, which is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And that's going to be searching nearby stars, bright stars, for transiting planets in the hope of finding these Earth-sized worlds. But it's not going to be able to find anything like the TRAPPIST system. And that's really interesting because it means that we right now have the opportunity to prepare ourselves and really start the search for understanding of each of these planets because we have that information now. Now, we've been doing follow-up of the innermost planets, so TRAPPIST B and C with the Hubble Space Telescope to look at their atmospheres. Now, the idea of this follow-up we uh, published in September last year, and we covered it in one of our exocasts actually, was to look for a hydrogen dominated atmosphere around these worlds. Now, if a Earth-sized world had a hydrogen envelope, which uh, is what comprises most of our outer solar system planets, so Neptune, Uranus, uh, mostly hydrogen helium, that would be suggestive that the temperature on the surface would be far too hot. Now, hydrogen's a very, very good greenhouse gas, so it would cause this this runaway warming of the planet. And we don't want to be finding that, essentially. Now, what we've, we discovered is that TRAPPIST-1b uh, and C, so the innermost planets, do not have this hydrogen envelope around them. Uh, and that's a really first indication that these are terrestrial in nature. And by terrestrial, we mean likely rocky, likely to have a surface, and uh, likely to be composed mostly of materials that we are 
common to in our inner solar system planets. So that's really exciting. Now, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be pursuing these other planets with Hubble, and we're going to be trying to work out what their atmospheres are like. So you definitely need to stay tuned for more information on that one. Uh, but uh, we've got nothing for you right now, unfortunately. Stay tuned. That one's coming your way. So these, this is really exciting for so many different reasons. Um, actually, the James Webb Space Telescope, which launches in October of 2018, is already kind of poised to look at these planets. Now, what we learned from Hubble is that we can look for water signatures. So we can look for this hydrogen helium uh, envelope around these worlds to see if that's there, because that would really enhance the water features that we would see. Now, with the James Webb Space Telescope, we can look at it further into the red, and that would allow us to look for signatures of methane or carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide. And if we see these types of signatures, that really indicates that these are very much terrestrial worlds with compact atmospheres uh, like the Earth or like Venus. And they're the first indicators of these things that Andrew's talked about before, these biosignatures. So that's really what we're looking for in these kinds of worlds. Now, I personally think that the transition from in the habitable zone and then out of the habitable zone is the most exciting thing, really trying to understand the impact the star has on the same kind of planet, but at different positions in its orbit. That is incredibly exciting to me. So that's really where I think my focus will be when I'm looking at all of the data for the, the atmospheres of these different worlds. But this is our best shot at looking at Earth-sized habitable zone worlds. Uh, for the next decade and it's going to be so exciting we're always going to be learning something uh, there's a couple of questions that i've had over social media we did a fantastic reddit ama and we did uh, a couple of other things and one of the the main questions that we get is what is it about this star that means that there are these planets um, around them and this comes down to the formation question as well the formation of a star is you know, generally thought to come from a disk. So you spin down a disk of material, form your central star, and then you are forming these planets around it. Now, because these planets are all very small and all very compact, I think there's a very high chance that there is another planet in the system. And one that's might possibly bigger. It'd be great if we found a bigger planet that was further out that caused these these smaller worlds that we're seeing to be close in and so compact. Um, and we are seeing transit timing variations, differences in the time in which they're passing in front of the star due to interactions. You know, I'm not going to be surprised if Michelle uh, and the team come up with a whole host of new stuff. And I'm super excited to find out what it is that they're able to, to discover. Um, I'm just here to look at the atmospheres and try and work out what the environments of these worlds are like. Trying to work out what the environments of an alien Earth-sized planet, alien terrestrial world, is really, really very exciting. It's what drives us to Mars, really trying to understand what these planets are actually like. I prefer it if, you know, we were driven to go to Venus as well, you know, have this whole host of terrestrial worlds that we can explore and try and understand in our own solar system. But what we can do with TRAPPIST is we can use those to explore internal to our own solar system as well. We can use them to inform how are inner planets formed, what the different environments might be like for this kind of category of worlds. 
So we can use it to look outwards and we can use it to look inwards. So it's really a combination of not only a massive international collaboration, huge number of telescopes and a huge number of theories and observation techniques just coming together in, in one beautiful, crazy alien package. And I don't know that there's anything more exciting than that. I think the entire exoplanet community can get involved with this. It's something that everybody should be kind of looking towards and, and using all of the stuff we're learning about hot Jupiters, which is stuff that I love doing, to really inform us about these other types of systems as well is, is so important. It, it all kind of feeds back into each other. And I think we're learning that and showing that to the public really nicely with this system. Yeah, it's an incredible system, isn't it? Really is. I was wondering if in, in 20, 20 years' time, say, we have the technology to detect biosignatures. Just take a guess now. How many how many have biosignatures? How many don't? What do you think? Do you think TRAPPIST-1 might have the first inhabited planet? That depends on your definition of inhabited. Uh, I've learned from science fiction that that can range from anything uh, to anything. And also, you know, from life on Earth, we, we know that that can... These extremophiles are unbelievable creatures that can exist in the most crazy environments i think our best bet of biosignatures are currently possibly within our own solar system on on the moons that we have which you know are similar situations to the trappist one planets if you look at the galilean satellites around jupiter the the four main largest moons around jupiter they're in a very similar uh, resonance pattern around Jupiter as the four, four innermost planets of the TRAPPIST-1 system are to its star. So we've got, we've got an example of this in our own solar system of the different kind of tidal interactions and environments that you might expect. For biosignatures themselves, as Andrew's explained previously, they're very difficult. Uh, one, to define. Two, to rule out, discover justify in their uniqueness uh, it's not going to be easy i don't think 20 years is enough for the techniques that we have the james Webb space telescope is going to be fantastic it's combined with the hubble observations it's going to give us so much information about the different balances of gases in the atmosphere but really i think it's it, we're pushing towards the next generation of telescopes where we can really hammer down that signal so will they see it then? Will they see biosignatures? What, what's your your intuition say? My intuition says that E and F, so Trappist E and Trappist F, so they're on six-day and nine-day orbits. I think they're our best bet, and I think that they're fascinating. One thing that I didn't say, which which is something that I kind of, I've been thinking about this and, and trying to work out different ways of comparing it and making people understand what's going on. So TRAPPIST-1 is 40 light years away. So it takes light 40 years to get there. So they are living, what, disco era right now. Um, Great era. Um, <laughs> and if there were life on these worlds, let's assume that they evolved identically to the Earth and they're at exactly the same timeline as we are. So in the 80s, we had Space Shuttle launched in 81. We had already gone to the moon. If you're standing on TRAPPIST-E or TRAPPIST-F, you know, or any of these planets, then you would be able to see the other planets in your sky as big as the moon. There would be planet hopping. 
I completely agree, actually, Hannah. I was going to say that. I don't think the, the hopping would even necessarily have to be directed because of the, the material transfer between these planets, maybe on the scale of certainly less than 10,000 years, you could be moving material between the outermost and the innermost planets, you know, through impacts. Oh, um, yeah. and, we, and we know based on, you know, hypothetical research, looking into those those uh, those impacts and the energy that they liberate and the ability of organisms to be insulated within that material in interplanetary space, I, I think that if there's life on one of those planets, there's probably going to be life on all of them, um, because of the the ability for the for the tr- for the transfer material in in a system that is this compact. So that's something that I mean I didn't think about that until very recently. That when we're finding uh, meteorites that have fallen to the Earth, which are Martian in origin, that's information transfer between planets. What's to say that there isn't stuff leaving the Earth and going to Venus and Mars and and other planets. If we're getting that transfer one way, why isn't it going the other way? And that's something that we should just wholly expect from this system is that there is this this impact transfer. The problem is, does that life not then have to land on an environment which is conducive to evolution? Yeah, absolutely. You're going to have to, there's going to be a, a number of incredibly small probabilities involved in this. Firstly, the probability that, you know, the organisms survive that uh, initial uh, liberation from the one planet, the trip through interplanetary space, and then the impact on the next planet in an environment that is able to support that life. But when you're thinking about, okay, with analogous bacterial communities, you only need, you know, survival down to like, 10 to the minus six to still get a viable community and if you have you know several billion years of of this transfer with maybe only ten thousand years travel time it's 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 certainly possible um and you know we like to err on the side of of caution here on exocast of course um but there's nothing that theoretically would be limiting that that transfer and and of course trappist one has a trillion years Right, it, sh- it will shine for a trillion years, so it's got a long time. This is another thing which is really interesting, and a couple of people, I'm not sure that they've heard it or understood it before, but because these stars are so small, they actually last longer than the sun. They last about 10 trillion years to our 10 billion years, which it, it just is mind-blowing that something like this can exist. We actually do know yeah. that Trappist-1 is, is, you know, a decent age it's not young so we we kind of expect it to calm down a little bit over time um but also that all small earth-sized worlds will have some kind of hydrogen envelope around them when they're very very young and then they'd lose that because hydrogen escapes incredibly easily it's very very light so it it can escape a planet's pull the fact that we didn't find it around the the closest planets is kind of suggesting also that this is a fairly old system um which is really quite useful um so there's there's a load of things that are pointing to the fact that this is a great place to look yeah i can't wait to see what the spectra of some of these worlds is going to be with james webb that's going to be incredible yeah i'm i'm really hoping that we can hammer down the signal as much as possible with hubble um hammer down and and try and get as as much prior information of this uh, as possible we're gonna that it's only through the combination of all of these little puzzle pieces that we can we can really get the information we need about this kind of system. Excellent. Thanks, Anna. So now Andrew is going to take us on a philosophical journey into exoplanet research. Thanks, Hugh. 
so here at Exoclast, we love planets. We love finding them, we love characterizing them, and we love thinking about all the weird life forms that could be living on their surface. And I think the previous segment illustrated that pretty clearly. And I was very excited about Trappist One. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably love exoplanets too. And I think we've discussed at length the how of finding exoplanets, how we find them, how we characterize them. Um, but we've not really touched on the why much. I think intuitively our reason's obvious, right? Even excluding everything we can learn about our planet uh, and our solar system by comparison, the scientific utility of the search, if you will, uh, the possibility of answering the question, are we alone, now seems closer than ever. And this is cause for more excitement. And I think hunting for, for planets that could harbor life is is arguably the scientific investigation of our generation, which is a bit of a big statement, but I think I can back it up. We've got the technology and we've been building on the theories and concepts that have been developing for centuries to be finally able to peer out into the depths of the cosmos and make sense of that long dark that envelops our solar island out here in the calm and quiet oceans of this corner of the Milky Way. But our fascination with this goal of finding of finding other planets is, is not a new one. Humankind have considered the idea that other planets may exist as far back as ancient Greece and probably much earlier than that, but we have no record of those earlier discussions and conversations. Certainly, I think with, with less light pollution and nights spent under the stars, and of course the importance of, of calculating seasons and their positions for agriculture and navigation, our ancestors were probably more connected to the night sky than, than most of us are in the modern world. The Greek atomists um, had been thinking about this question for some time, or had been, um, and they extended their, their philosophy to the heavens, uh, determining that the physical laws that govern the very small should also govern the movement and formation of celestial bodies, or at least provide no obstacle to their existence. So, for example, Epicurus, uh, who was arguably one of the earliest people we could identify as a, as a scientist, um, who was writing in the 3rd century BC, says... There are infinite worlds, both like and unlike this world of ours. For the atoms being infinite in number, as was already proven, there nowhere exists an obstacle to the infinite number of worlds. Which, you know, is quite a progressive view for the time, I think. Building on this, and writing about 300 years later, uh, Lucretius, in his epic poem On the Nature of Things, writes... But by no means can it be thought probable, when infinite space is open in every quarter, that this one globe of the earth and this one heaven have been alone produced, especially when this world was merely made by natural causes and to no purpose, for which reason it is irresistibly incumbent on you to admit that there are other combinations of matter in other places, such as is this world, which the ether holds in its vast embrace." So unfortunately, we don't write science like that anymore. But what I think Lucretius was trying to say is that there's an infinite multiplicity of worlds out there for us to discover. However, not all philosophers at the time were convinced. Uh, Aristotle, who was incredibly influential, uh, of course, considered the existence of, of a void, which was required by those atomic theories to violate physical principles, stating simply, there cannot be more worlds than one. Unfortunately, following the fall of Rome, much of the astronomy of the classic age was lost to Europeans, um, and medieval beliefs regarding the cosmos were mostly derived from the philosophical works of Aristotle, uh, which placed the Earth at the centre of the universe. Now, this was a, a philosophical position that suited the religious hegemony of the time, as a geocentric universe also reflected the centrality of humans to all of God's creation, and in many ways legitimised both the 
theocratic structures of governance and the role of scripture in ultimately understanding the cosmos and everything. So thanks in part to the arrival of the astrolabe from the Islamic world, which was, of course, doing great science all the way through the medieval period, uh, astronomy underwent a, a bit of a revolution in Europe, um, driven by heliocentric troublemakers like Nicholas Copernicus, who were espousing dangerous ideas regarding the position of the sun and the centre of the universe. So these ideas were, unfortunately, violently repressed uh, by the theocracies of the time. Uh, but undoubtedly, there was a shift underway, and the position of the Earth and its entitled inhabitants at the centre of all things was under threat. So the Catholic monk, poet, mathematician, and general badass Giordano Bruno extended the then new and still very controversial Copernican model of cosmology by asserting that there were countless suns and countless earths all rotating around their suns. The Catholic Church did not agree, however, and due to his refusal to renounce his heretical views, Bruno was burned at the stake in 1600, becoming a martyr for science. The first documented search for extrasolar planets was by Christian Huygens, uh, a century after Bruno's death. Although there were likely earlier attempts at this elusive goal, the documentation of this is, is pretty scarce, obviously. Huygens thought that if other worlds did exist, they would be inhabited by other intelligent life, as God would not create a world replete with beauty and wonder if there was no being there to appreciate his works and give praise and prayer. Now, perhaps this was an attempt to dilute his heresy with the church so he didn't get burnt at the stake, uh, or perhaps he really did believe this to be the case. He also, in his posthumously published work, Cosmotheros, advanced an early form of the habitable zone concept, noting that life needs liquid water to exist, but incorrectly noting that the properties of water would change between planets uh, to ensure its liquidity and therefore accessibility to life. So bit by bit, and eventually confirmed by the discovery of the first exoplanets, which we've discussed at length uh, in the 1990s, the picture started to emerge that the Earth is just one of many rocks in one of many galaxies in a nearly infinite cosmological ocean of manys. Um, this is a, a massive demotion for a world whose inhabitants once thought themselves at the centre of everything, both literally but figuratively, uh, and this has been arguably the theme of astronomy throughout its tumultuous history. However, I don't think we should be too depressed each time we're reminded that just perhaps we're not the central players in the universe and that maybe some preordained meaning for us doesn't really exist because that allows us to create our own meaning with us at the center. <laughs> um, and we can be united behind a common goal of, of exploration and curiosity, which is something that is uniquely human. It also illustrates that nowadays maybe science and philosophy are separate, but they used to be indistinguishable. The distinct methodology of, of the scientific method actually might lend philosophy a unique role in modern astronomy that is just as valuable and maybe a little bit unexplored. But as so is often the case, exoplanet science is, is kind of leading the way in, in changing our view of where we see ourselves in, in the universe. Yeah, I think it's definitely something with this discovery, it's really changing the way that people see themselves but also we have to remember that this is so new uh, the latest generations of of people are growing up where this has always been the case the philosophy that those people are going to have is going to be different from the the older generations that we currently have because they have known nothing different they haven't existed in a world where we didn't know for certain whether there were other planets out there uh, everyone being born today and everyone that's that was born less than 20 years ago is in that 
kind of different philosophical mindset and i think that's gonna that's gonna change over time we're gonna that's gonna be revealed a little bit more about how they think about themselves how they think about our planet and everything moving forward so that would be really interesting to see how that comes about and arguably also how they think about um you know science how they do science you know if you're if you're thinking of things as being um kind of universally the same throughout the universe with no privileged frame of reference i think that puts you in a better a better place to do science you know so often you know we think about the earth as being our our standard for habitability and i think that that does that can confuse things sometimes if we if we can really appreciate the fact that we're just one of many i think that actually adds a lot to uh how we approach how we approach the science certainly and it also highlights the fact that scientific discovery is not just done by scientists Uh, it's not a special thing it's done by the imaginations of people who are coming up with ideas that that can be fed on by the scientific method which is then done to kind of prove those so it's not just people that are you know analyzing data that are important in the future discoveries of the universe it's the people that are writing books and it's the people that are making stories and doing beautiful art it's a combination of all things coming together and that's very much like exoplanet science itself. Uh, it's a lot of sciences coming together to try and make sense of, of entire planetary systems. So I think, you know, the human effort behind that should reflect that diversity too. Okay, and now Hugh is going to take us through this month's exoplanet news. Right, yeah. Well, I'm on the exoplanet news desk this month, and we have quite a few interesting discoveries. Maybe not quite as interesting as TRAPPIST-1, but I'll see what I can do. So I'll start with news out of the Keck telescope, or the, or the high-res instrument specifically. So since 1994, uh, this, this instrument, the high-resolution Eschel spectrometer, has been hunting for exoplanets. And in fact, it was one of the first, one of the first ways we found radial velocity planets back in the 90s. And it's been one of the most successful exoplanet hunting machines in the world since then, finding over 100 planets via the radial velocity method and confirming many more transiting planets as well. But until now, most of that data, which adds up to something like 60,000 spectra, has not been public, really. But that all changed this month when Paul Butler and the HiRes team released all of the measured radial velocity data into the public domain, which is an incredible achievement, really. Uh, So this included 1,600 stars observed over 20 years. And when they searched through all the data in in, in the same way, looking for the signals of exoplanets, they found 357 strong sinusoids that looked like the sort of phase signal we expect from an exoplanet. And of these, 220 of them had been previously published, but 114 were undetected candidates, uh, which which in the future, with a bit of follow-up, will probably become bona fide or bona fide planets. So these new signals include a few very interesting cases, one of which is uh, the star Leyland 21185, which has actually been mentioned in Exocast 3b, as it was erroneously believed to have a planet in the 1950s, which was uh, killed off effectively. Uh, but now, though, it does have a genuine planetary companion, or at least we have a good a good candidate signal. Uh, and it's a 3.8 Earth-mass super-Earth on a 10-day orbit around one of the nearest M-dwarf stars to our Sun, so only eight light-years away. It's not, as some media sources have claimed, a habitable planet, though, orbiting well inside the inner edge of the habitable zone. But it is definitely an interesting interesting new world, and one of hundreds added to the, the roster of exoplanets in the last month. 
Another new instrument looking for planets was also announced this month, and that's the Mascara telescopes. So this stands for the Multi-Site All-Sky Camera, uh, and it's an eye-opening new transit survey built by astronomers at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. And they're hunting for transiting planets around stars in the magnitude range from 4th to 8th magnitude. And magnitude 6 is the sort of limit of the human eye. So some of these stars will even be naked eye stars, so, so definitely some of the brightest in the, in the sky. And it may seem like uh, those stars have been might have been hunted for exoplanets before, but actually most of the transiting planet surveys we have now focus on much fainter stars, which are much more numerous and therefore more likely to produce many candidates. So in, in this way, they're, the team are really not going for quantity, they're going for quality instead. So they're looking for new transiting planets around some of the brightest stars in the sky. And being around bright stars means that they, they'll be key for atmospheric follow-up and radial velocity me method and all of the follow-up we can think of to try and characterise these worlds. Um, the survey consists of two stations, one in La Palma in the Canary Islands and one in La Silla in Chile, and these are able to cover the whole sky above each uh, observatory simultaneously. And like many transiting planet surveys, these telescopes are actually adapted from off-the-shelf digital cameras, and kind of unlike most transiting planet surveys, the telescopes don't move, so as the stars rotate overhead, they don't track, but they, they stare stationary at the sky and um, track the, the stars effectively afterwards and, and figure out if a transit is occurring. And another kind of smaller version of Mascara is the Bring telescope. Uh, this is a smaller sort of two-camera version that was installed in South Africa, and it'll also do everything Mascara does, but one of, one of its key uh, goals is to try and search for transiting material around Beta Pick. So Beta Pick is, is a nearby young star with a uh, large Jupiter-sized planet around it. And we know that in 2017, this planet, which was directly imaged, so seen directly, is going to pass in front of the star. So it's not quite going to transit, but if there is anything around the planets, such as rings, then Bring will be able to detect this, this transit. So hopefully it finds something interesting. Uh, another news from this month was about the planet Hat P2. So uh, it's, this is a big sort of eight Jupiter mass, an eccentric planet, so on, on a non-circular elliptical orbit. And it orbits a star slightly larger than the Sun in about 5.6 days. So this is quite an extreme planet, very big, very close in with a large sort of elliptical orbit. And that means every orbit, the planet kind of dumps gravitational and tidal energy into the outer layers of the star. And so the team from MIT, led by Julian DeWitt, wondered if this might cause observable changes in the starlight. So with Spitzer, they observed for 15 days in total and studied how the starlight varied over that time. In it, they found tiny pulsations every 102 and 87 minutes, and these were actually exact integer multiples of the orbital period. So um, 60, 79 and 91 times less, effectively, than the orbital period. And they were able to rule out systematics for these. And it seems like the planet is indeed causing the star to pulsate, pulsate at these frequencies, effectively with the rhythm of the planet. And this is a, an effect that we haven't really seen before in stars orbited by planets. So quite an interesting one there. Um, another thing you might have seen in the news was people want to make Pluto a planet again. Uh, so Alan Stern, uh, who was the, uh, the boss of the New Horizons mission, which explored Pluto last year, and therefore you might realise he might have something something of a bone to pick with the current definition of a planet. So he proposed to the IAU a new abstract for how to define planets. 
So in 2006, while New Horizons was on its way out to the ninth planet of our solar system, the IAU decided that it wasn't a planet at all. They were basically faced with either admitting a handful of new Pluto-like bodies beyond Neptune, or kicking out Pluto and all of those other bodies into a dwarf planet class, and this is what they went with. However, that definition they came up with in 2006 doesn't really... It has, it has many problems with it. So, firstly, the sort of clearing out its orbit, which is one of the, the um, points in the definition, isn't really uh, well-defined. It's kind of a vague definition. Also, there's some confusion over whether potentially large moons or double planet systems might be planets or not. And for a, for a start, no exoplanets are included in the definition at all. So there is something that needs to change in this, maybe. So, Alan Stern and his team proposed a new definition that is a planet is a substellar mass body that has never undergone nuclear fusion and that has sufficient self-gravitation to assume a spheroidal shape adequately described by a triaxial ellipsoid regardless of its orbital parameters that is to say basically any spherical body under 14 jupiter masses where we think um, planets begin to become stars and fuse basically any body is a planet so this would also include as you might have realized large moons trans-Neptunian bodies like Pluto and Makemake, as we heard, and even asteroids like Ceres, which was itself kicked out of the class of planets in the 19th century. So this would increase the number of planets from 8 to 110, and I think therein lies its downfall. So back in 2006, rather than add a few more planets to the, the planet class, astronomers decided to just remove one. So their reaction to adding Pluto and 101 other objects into being planets, I think is probably very predictable as well. And in fact, so obvious do I think the decision is going to be, for some reason on Twitter I, I, I bet that if, if it did happen I would eat a bowl of sand. So hopefully hopefully, <laughs> in the next couple of years the IAU doesn't vote for this, otherwise I'll be left very uh, gritty teeth. But um, yeah, that's that's the Exocast news for this month. Uh, hopefully more Trappist 1 and more amazing news like that next month, but we'll see. Absolutely brilliant. A bowl of sand. Any reason for that choice? Yeah, I don't know why I picked a bowl of sand. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm kind of inclined to agree with you that I think it's... Um, I don't understand what the issue is, if I'm entirely honest. It seems like it's more of an ego thing because it's... Pluto, the definition that is used for dwarf planet, I think is very reasonable in that it it is very different from the other planets in our solar system. And while there are some similarities, it is more akin to some of the moons that we're seeing around the giant planets. So it's more like Titan than it is like any of the terrestrial planets close to the, the sun. Um, its size is also very, very small. And so, so are all of the other large dwarf planets, you know, Eris and Sedna and, and Make Make and, you know, there's a huge number of these different worlds that we, we're trying to understand. And I think getting lost in the minutiae of definitions and words is not helpful. It doesn't advance us in any way in terms of our understanding. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things Alan Stern said was that by becoming not a planet, Pluto effectively got less attention or was people it became a less uh, exotic and less interesting place to study based purely on its definition and i disagree with that entirely because i think regardless of what it's called it's always going to be interesting as long as there is you know good science to do um, interesting results to find on it i don't think calling it something different is going to change 
I would say that that's the entirely the opposite. If they hadn't have changed it, it would not have got the attention that it did. If they hadn't have said that, no, it's not a planet, it's in fact this class of dwarf planets, then it wouldn't be in the general populace, you know, conversation of, oh, but what about Pluto? It's not a planet anymore. That gave it the huge leap of attention in the general population that it needed for the discoveries of New Horizons to have such a high impact. I think it's completely the opposite argument. Absolutely, Hannah. I totally agree with you there. Um, especially as I believe one entire episode of Rick and Morty was was dedicated <laughs> to the fact that Pluto wasn't a planet. So it's it's infiltrated the public, you know, the the, the cultural consciousness as well. I, I do think that exoplanets need to be made planets, though. I think that's that's something we can all agree the IAU needs to sort out. Uh, yeah, I think that potentially that's a separate definition of the word exoplanet and I, I think the IAU are just very very far behind on the curve for making that incorporated into their dictionary I think that word is now incorporated into a, a very decent portion of the general population's you know dictionary of words to describe planets well since we've been talking about planets uh, Andrew would you like to adopt a planet into our exocast family Yes, I would, Hannah. As we correctly noted earlier, there's been huge amounts of excitement around exoplanet discoveries this week. The announcement of the TRAPPIST-1 family of planets really captured everyone's imagination, um, thanks mainly to the efforts of, of the professional astronomers involved in the study who took to television, who took to social media to answer questions and explain the findings, including, of course, our very own seemingly tireless SciComs Pro, Hannah Wakeford. I'd be, I think, remiss, therefore, if I didn't suggest we adopt one of these new Trappist planets into our Exocast clan to officially welcome them to the party, uh, to help to introduce them to the rest of their slightly strange siblings that are arrayed across this corner of our galaxy. Now, the problem is, there are seven of them, uh, and I really don't want to be seen to be playing favourites, especially when, according to Tuesday's Google Doodle anyway, they're all very, very cute. But there is, I think, one Trappist planet that does stand out slightly, though, and that's Trappist-1h. So this is the most distant of the seven discovered to date, um, and it only has one observed orbit so far. Therefore, its orbital parameters aren't very well constrained just yet. We've got a good idea that it exists, we're confident about that, but we're just not too sure what it's up to at the moment. We think it orbits Trappist-1 in about 20 days, as Hannah mentioned, at a distance about one-sixth that of Mercury around the Sun, so very, very close. But because the star is so cool, the planet is still very cold, probably below minus 100 degrees Celsius. Its mass and radius are still kind of up for grabs, but it's probably around one Earth mass. Therefore, I think that by adopting this most distant of the Trappist family, we can ensure that Planet H doesn't feel too left out uh, and isn't tempted to act out due to lack of attention um, because we have our eye on Trappist-1h. Or more specifically, we have the many eyes of our best exoplanet workhorse, the Kepler spacecraft, on Planet H. So the telescope has been pointed at Trappist-1 since late last year, actually, um, as the system falls inside the K2 Campaign 12 field. Uh, and these observations will hopefully help us tighten up Planet H's unknowns just in time for its welcome party. Excellent. I, I, I personally hold uh, planets that we've only seen transit once close to my heart because I'm, I'm looking for them in K2. So, <laughs> so I, I agree with, with, with Planet H's uh, adoption here. It's a good choice. So um, for the K2 campaign, what kind of uh, signal and precision 
can you get? Is it is it enough to get all of these transits with high enough certainty that that it aids in the kind of constraints we can place on all of the properties? Um, Hugh might know more about this. Um, I, I know I know the K two team are quite confident that they'll be able to tighten things up certainly but i have heard utterings that the accuracy and the precision isn't sufficient to really add a huge amount to what we know about the system already but i'll defer to Hugh if he has anything else to add on that yeah so unfortunately spitzer which is what observed trappist for 20 days i don't know last year i guess um observed in the infrared and trappist is pretty bright in the infrared it's like ninth magnitude in the visible it's um 16.7 and effectively, there's a hundred times less light coming from this star in the visible than there is in the infrared. So we're going to get ten times worse precision, I think. Uh, so whether we'll actually be able to spot Planet H again, it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be touch and go, but hopefully, hopefully we'll see it. Excellent. I think this has been a really fun, packed exocast uh we have learned so much about the Trappist-1 systems, about all of the new discoveries that are happening and hopefully we're going to hear about in the future with the new surveys which have gone online and a little bit about the philosophy and how maybe our view of ourselves and the search for exoplanets will be changing over the next couple of generations. But that is it for this month's Exocast. So thank you for joining us. Next time, Andrew and Hugh are actually taking it on the road. They're going to uh, a meeting at in the UK at St. Andrews. That's the UK Exoplanet meeting. And we'll be uh, reporting to us directly from there. I'm going to hold down the fort on our international news desk and cover the rest of the global Exoplanet news. And uh, we'll see what we can come up with. But until next time. Goodbye. Bye all. Take us. Yeah.